Please join me in John chapter 18. We're going to be talking about being in the courtroom with Jesus. One of the popular genres of American television is the genre called true crime. I made the mistake of asking in the 8 o'clock service how many people watch these true crime shows. I think I was like the only one. There's me and somebody else. But these are those shows that are on channels like A&E and ID. NBC has its famous Dateline program. There's a whole channel now called Court TV. And so people, some of us, sometimes are riveted by these shows. And I think part of what's riveting is you get to go really face-to-face with some extreme examples of human sinfulness. But I think what really is why we watch these shows is because there's something satisfying about how they discover the crime, they investigate the crime, they bring that person to justice, and it's very satisfying to see that person then sentenced. When you see that good triumphs over evil, we love that. Now here we're going to go into the courtroom of Jesus, and we're going to find no satisfaction like that initially. That we're going to see a grave injustice, the worst injustice of all time. Jesus, the sinless one, is going to be sentenced to death on a cross. But even in that most infamous injustice, here's a wonderful paradox. We're going to see that through that injustice, God brings about the justice for our sins and the forgiveness available through Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the good news. This is the gospel. That Jesus, the sinless one, is going to offer himself to make atonement on a cross for all of our sins. So let me remind us what we're doing in this series of sermons. We spent months in the upper room with Jesus. Then we walked out of the upper room, and last week we were in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're on our way to the cross. We're on our way to the empty tomb on Easter. That's where we are. But remember, last time we stepped out of the upper room into the garden. And in the garden, we saw that Jesus did not allow his disciples to fight for him. Neither did Jesus summon those legions of angels at his disposal to stop this arrest. Neither did Jesus break the bonds that were on his wrist. He kept them there because he's offering himself. He's on his way to a cross willingly for us. But now we step out of that garden today and we go into a courtroom. Really, if we said more accurately, a series of courtrooms, a series of trials, interrogations. Now, we're not going to look at all these this morning, but there are actually six trials that Jesus is going to endure on his way to the cross. There'll be three Jewish trials and then three Roman trials. They take him out of the garden first to the high priest's house, one by the name of uh, Annas. He was the previous high priest, actually. And after that time in Annas's house, they take him to Caiaphas's house, who was the current high priest. Then early that next morning, he's there before the full Sanhedrin, all the religious leaders there. And they're going to pronounce Jesus as a blasphemer worthy of death. But because they did not have the authority to put somebody to death, they needed the Roman involvement. So they take Jesus after these three Jewish trials to the Romans, and they take him to the one, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate says, I don't see any guilt in him. So he passes him off to Herod, who who was in Jerusalem, but who had been over Galilee. He said, I'll just hand him off to him. Herod gave a brief interrogation, also found no guilt in him. Back to Pilate, who will reluctantly sentence Jesus to death. But in these six phases of his trial, we see in these men, we see corruption and cowardice. And by contrast, we see in Jesus righteousness and resolve. In fact, that's my goal this morning in this message, that you and I would see this contrast between Jesus and everyone else. 
And my prayer is this, as you see Jesus set apart from everybody else, that you will love Jesus more by the time we're done. That you'll be more devoted to Jesus than you've ever been in light of seeing him clearly as better and higher and more wonderful than everybody else. In fact, my prayer is that you'll fully trust in Jesus. If you haven't already done that, if you've never given yourself fully to Jesus, I pray that you'll do that. You don't even have to wait till the end of this sermon. Right where you are, you can say, right now, I see Jesus. There's no treasure like him. I'm asking Jesus to be my savior, to be my Lord. But let's dive into the text here. First, I want you to see with me this contrast between Peter and Jesus. Here's Peter in the courtyard of the high priest. And this happens, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest. A relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. Here John records the second and third denials of Peter. Peter saying, I don't, I don't know who this Jesus is. We saw last time in verse 17, the first denial of Peter that he knew Jesus. So these three moments of terrible failure of Peter's life, they're recorded here in the scripture for us. And it's surprising for us that Peter would fail like this because this is Peter, one of the 12. And among the 12, he's one of the three. And typically Peter's listed first among the disciples. So we would say he was the leader among Jesus's disciples. And here he's failing in such a royal way. It's also surprising here because it was earlier that night back in the upper room when Peter said to Jesus, I'm willing to die for you. Do you remember this? He said to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. And that's where Jesus said, Peter, will you really lay down your life for me? That's when Jesus foretold this denial. Actually, by the time the rooster crows this day, you will deny me three times. But here's Peter failing in such a big way. It's also surprising that he's denying Jesus because that same night there in the garden, Peter's the one that took that sword and took a swing at one of the arresting person's heads and cut off merely an ear. Remember, Jesus healed the ear, told him to put away his sword. But here's Peter, I'll die for you. I'll fight for you. But here he is denying, denying, and denying now that he even knows Jesus. All four gospel writers are inspired by God to include this. I think that's interesting for us. In fact, Mark records that final denial like this. This is Mark 14, 71. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Luke describes that moment this way. It says this in Luke twenty-two fifty-nine. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted saying, certainly this man also was with him for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he, Peter, he went out and wept bitterly. We're just taking a moment to contrast Peter with Jesus. Think about Jesus with me. Jesus knew all that was going to take place. He knows the cross is coming. He had even already told Peter, I know that you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Jesus knows everything that's happening. And Jesus kept stepping toward those arresting him, stepping toward the cross. When they came to arrest Jesus, he said, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember Jesus's response? He said, I am. I'm he. Now, Peter, when they said, hey, don't you belong to Jesus? He doesn't say I am or I'm he. He says, I am 
not. Again, all four Gospels, they record this. The Holy Spirit wanted us to have this. The ESV commentary says it this way. There is no indication anywhere that Peter sought to suppress the story of how he denied Jesus three times. We all sin, but whose sin can be compared to Peter's? The Lord Jesus himself, the most important person ever to live, was on trial. And Peter, one of his closest disciples, denied him three times when he was at his most lonely and vulnerable moment. And for the rest of Peter's life, indeed, indeed for the rest of history, his greatest failure has been rehearsed at every telling of the story most central to our faith. So how about that for Peter? That this great moment of failure recorded in our scriptures and we just don't forget it. Aren't you glad your, your failures, your sins aren't recorded in the scriptures? I'm grateful that when you and I sin, that we can confess to the Lord and Lord, I was so, I'm so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. Would you please forgive me? And we can be forgiven and restored and keep moving. But Peter's are recorded in the scripture. So we say, well, why, why would God record this big failure? Well, first, because it happened. This failure of Peter's recorded in all four gospels because it happened. This is another evidence of the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the Bible. And the Bible over and over again points to only one perfect one. Jesus is the only perfect one. Every other human we see in the scripture, we know they are failed human beings just like you and, are, you and I are. Even great famous ones in the Bible. So we go to Adam, we say, obviously, we see his failure. But Noah, also we see his failings. Abraham, we see him frail. We see David failing. We see Elijah, a great prophet, failing. Peter, right here. But how about these churches that the apostles planted across the Roman Empire? All of them had problems. And so we have the apostle writing into those. We're so grateful. The context of so much of our scripture is addressing error and sin in the churches. So when we read the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, we see that Jesus stands alone. Only he's perfect. Only he's worthy of praise. Only he's worthy of worship. But I love how honest the Bible is, how it does give a credible testimony. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. It doesn't gloss over things. It doesn't present with us a false account of things. Here we see embarrassing moments like this in the life of Peter recorded. So why is this in the scriptures? Because it happened. Why else is this here? It's for a lesson for us. We also are people who fail. And here's good news for us. We look at the life of Peter. You can fail, but in Jesus Christ, there's hope and there's restoration. In fact, as we stay in the gospel of John through Easter, through the resurrection, and in the weeks following that, we're going to see Peter very clearly restored by the Savior, even after this great failure on this day. So this is good for us. There's a lesson for us. God can redeem us. He can forgive us when we fail in royal ways like this. It's also helpful for us when we consider others in the church. You think you, you're not only the only person who fails sometimes, but you're in a church family of people who also fail. There's not a perfect one here among us. In fact, think about that. What do you expect from your church family? What do you expect from your brothers and sisters here? Now, I hope everybody here, we love Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. In fact, I go into my day saying, I want to be fully surrendered, fully obedient all through the day. That's the goal. I don't go in thinking I'm looking for ways to sin. That, that would be making provision for the flesh that the scripture says, says don't do. So here we are, a body of people that want to please Jesus, but we're not perfect. We fall short. And so this is a reminder that we, we have people like Peter. We're, we are people like Peter, and we're going to have to give each other much grace. Even as we try to pick people up and spur each other on to love and good deeds, to follow Jesus, a lot of patience here, even as we exhort one another. And this awareness of our personal failings and the failings of others, this keeps us humble. 
And it keeps us only exalting Jesus when we consider this contrast. You ever know somebody who seems too proud about their own driving? Sometimes people go on social media and tell you what kind of knuckleheads are out there on the roads. Hey, people, this is what a, this is what a turn signal is for. And they blast that. They're like, they're the perfect driver. I just keep quiet. Because I've made dumb decisions driving myself, you know. Just when you think you're the perfect driver, you'll make one of those mistakes yourself. I've been at the traffic light before, and I'll be annoyed. Somebody's texting in front of me at the light. I'm glad they're at the light. But they don't see the light turn green, and we're about to miss the light. I'll be a little bit annoyed. But I'm not going to do much other than just give a little, a little honk there. Because next week, it'll be me. I'll be sitting at that light, engrossed in something, thankfully at the light. But I'll make these same kind of mistakes. Listen, our failures keep us humble here. Well, let's apply this to ourselves. A couple of questions. Let's consider, are we like Peter? We can see his three failings. Like, man, I'm glad I didn't do that. But are we like him? First of all, are you like Peter? Before Pentecost. At Pentecost, things radically changed him, full of the Holy Spirit. Still didn't become perfect. But before Pentecost, we see him wildly inconsistent in his life. Remember? I'll die for you. I'll fight for you. Now I don't even know you. And do you see some of that in you? Like you're very erratic. I just love Jesus. Maybe you hear a great song. Oh, I feel like I love you. I'd do anything for Jesus. And then you come down off that high and you're like, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm doing here. I've known people like that through the years. I remember leaving home and going off to college and we had a campus ministry I was a part of. And I remember it was just striking. We had a couple of people that were just really high. They, they just rode the emotions really high. Again, I might have been a song or a, a speaker or a conference or something. Man, they'd be the most excited Christians among us. But it would just drop rapidly. Where did they go? We haven't seen them forever. Then they're back all excited and then down and unfaithful. What is, what is that? And I remember thinking, I, I know this. I need, I need the word of God to give me consistency. I was saved through reading the Bible and prayer. I thought, I got to stay in that because I don't want to be on these wild swings. I'm not perfect. I'm going to fail, but I don't want my failures and my life going up and down like that. I need the consistency of the scripture. In fact, let me say that to you. If you see in yourself wild extremes of, of great faithfulness and great unfaithfulness and you're up and down like that, can I remind you, establish the discipline of meeting with Jesus in the word. In fact, it's what we just saw in the upper room several weeks ago. We saw there in, back in John 15, how we are to abide in Christ. And the best way to do that here, we have, the, we have access to the scriptures. We want to spend time with Jesus with an open Bible, getting to know him, surrendering ourselves every day to him. Let the word of God richly dwell within you. Be full of the Holy Spirit. Let the spirit of God produce his fruit in you that you'd have greater consistency. So are we, are we wildly inconsistent like Peter? And let's solidify that by meeting with Jesus. Here's another question. Have you overestimated your strength? Have you overestimated your strength like Peter apparently did? We love Peter. He's very sincere here. He wasn't lying when he said, I'll lay down my life for you. He wasn't lying about all that, but here he is denying Christ. I think he overestimated himself. I can do this for you, not, not being fully aware of how weak he was. Listen, you and I need to operate from a position of understanding we're weak. I hope you know that in your relationship with Jesus, you are the weak one. He's the strong one. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, but not in your own strength. In fact, this is what moves us to the word of God in prayer. This is what moves us to what we call a daily quiet time. It's not because I'm so strong that I'm going to go meet with God. It's I'm incredibly weak, and I know where I can find strength. It's in the presence of Christ. I need to abide in him that I can bear much fruit. Can't do this apart from him. So there's no pride here whatsoever. Remember 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we say together, I'm like Peter. I'm weak but I can be strong in Christ. Paul had this perspective, 2 Corinthians 12, 10. For the sake of Christ then, I'm content 
with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Here's another way to ask ourselves this. Are you like Peter? Are you denying Christ in your life right now? In some ways, are you trying to hide from the world? Are you denying that you know him? Maybe, maybe that's your goal. You do love the Lord, but you go to work, you go to school, and your goal is, I don't really want anybody to know that. I'm going to just kind of keep this under the radar. I'm going to be an under-the-radar Christian. I don't want anybody to really notice that I really love Jesus. That might show up in somebody's life where they kind of pepper their language with profanity. I don't want them to think I'm that committed. Or maybe you try to adopt the world, at least make people think that you're adopting the prevailing views of the age rather than to be a biblical Christian. You're just trying to hide it. Or maybe you know you got friends and family members, they need Jesus, they need a Savior like you need a Savior, but you're, you're wanting to keep it quiet and you're not speaking of Jesus. Can I remind you that we are not to be ashamed of Jesus? Back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus talked to us about the cost of discipleship and Jesus said these words, this is Mark eight thirty four. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Listen, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So we've been contrasting Christ with Peter. Now let's contrast Pilate with Jesus. Here we go, John 18, 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So they take Jesus to Pilate because after these trials before these Jewish leaders, they knew we can't put him to death. But the Roman governor, he can do it. This shows their goal. They want Jesus dead. Again, their statement, it's not lawful for us to put him to death. But Pilate, you're the Roman governor. You have that authority. You can put him to death. And that's exactly what we expect you to do. So Pilate now enters into this interrogation of Jesus. So hear this with me now. This is verses 33 and following. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? 
After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. I love how Jesus here, even though he's the one on trial, he's fully in charge of how this interrogation goes. Matthew and Mark tell us that when they would bring the accusations about Jesus, Jesus would remain, remain silent about that. Even Pilate marveled at how Jesus would not respond to the accusations. Here we have recorded, though, no matter what Pilate brings up, Jesus steers the conversation where he wants to go. It's Jesus who brings up his kingdom here, and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is greater than your mere Roman empire that you work for. I'm from a kingdom beyond this world. And yes, indeed, I'm a king. I'm a king of that kingdom. But notice how Jesus also, he brings up truth. Pilate doesn't bring up truth. Jesus takes the conversation where he wants it to go. Remember this, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So in contrast to Peter's triple lie, denying, denying, denying Jesus, in contrast to these accusers lying about him, Jesus speaks the truth. He said, I came to bear witness to the truth. Jesus even equates his words with truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And you know that Jesus consistently talked about truth. There's a major theme for him, even in the upper room. Remember this? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said, I am the truth. He's the embodiment of truth. Or John 16, 12, Jesus says, I'm going to send you the spirit of truth. Or John 17, 17, when Jesus is praying for his disciples, he prays this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So let's contrast together Jesus with Pilate. In fact, let's ask the question like we did with Peter. Are there ways in which you're like Peter? How about this? Are there ways in which you're like Pilate? Maybe you're like Pilate and you like to philosophize about truth but really deep down feel that truth is really unknowable, even though truth is right in front of you in Jesus. I'm with you. We live in a very perplexing age and very hard to discern in what we're hearing. Hey, what, what is true out there? So we have people very comfortable in these days saying things like this. You have your truth and I have my truth. You have your reality. I have my reality. But much of what is passed off as reality in our age is not real at all. It feels like we're living in a game of true or false. Remember those true or false tests? And your teacher put out there, give you things. These are false things. One of those things is true. All, most of it's false. And we're just trying to pick and choose in the culture. What, what among these things is true? When we watch the news, we don't know what can I believe. I don't know. We can even see a photograph now. And that might be Photoshopped. I don't know if that's real or not. They warn us about deep fake videos where it looks like that guy's saying that thing. Is he really saying that? I don't know. We have a crisis of truth in the culture. So we might be despairing. Like, is there any, can I know anything that's really right? Yes, you can know. Jesus is the truth. His word is truth. This will be a perfect time for you to nail that down. This will be good for your soul. This will be good for your mental health if you nail that down today. Nail down that Jesus is the truth. His word is truth. Be one of those that Jesus would describe this way. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So, of course, ask your questions, read the New Testament, and then bow and believe in Jesus. Trust in him. Love him. Root yourself in the truth of Jesus and his word. Here's a question. 
if you will not agree that Jesus is the truth, where will you look for truth? Where are you going to go? If it's not Jesus, if it's not the Word of God, where are you going to go in this world to find truth? Is it going to be you're going to go to some professor? Well, he seems smart. I guess I'll, I guess I'll leave behind the Bible and go with that professor. Or is it some blogger? That guy seems pretty smart. I'll go with the blogger. I'll, I'll set aside the scriptures. I'll go with that guy. Is it some actor or politician? Isn't that a bit comical when a Hollywood actor that we all enjoy being a great pretender, when that person has a view, we're supposed to go, oh, well, that's impressive. That famous person has an opinion. Well, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to set down the Bible. I'm going to set down Christ. I'm going to follow after that man or that woman. Or if we don't follow Jesus, if we don't see he's the truth and his word is truth, do we go to our foolish friends? Well, my fellow 15-year-olds, they seem to have it figured out. I think I'll just go with where the pack is going here. So are you that person? Truth is really unknowable. I don't know what to do. Or how about this one? Are you like Pilate, sitting in judgment of Jesus? What a strange dynamic here. Jesus standing before a mere man. Yes, a Roman governor, but he's a mere man. Jesus, the creator, the one before him, all of us are going to be standing in judgment one day. And here's Pilate. He has no idea who Jesus is, and it shows in how he talks to him. I've had times in my life I've met people I didn't know who they were. I remember it was years ago. I was about 12, I think. My dad took me to an NBA basketball game in Charlotte. It's before the NBA had a team in Charlotte, so it must have been some kind of exhibition game. It was the Atlanta Hawks and the Denver Nuggets playing in Charlotte, and Dad got tickets and took me to the game. And I was excited because David Thompson, former NC State star, great athlete, he was going to be playing because he played for the Denver Nuggets at the time. And so I was excited. I had my Polaroid camera. Anybody remember those? Instant pictures, had that white strip at the bottom of the picture. And I did. I got some pictures of David Thompson there at the game. Well, my dad, my dad sees Ted Turner. Ted Turner was the owner of the Atlanta Hawks, also a media mogul. The guy went on to uh, found CNN. So dad sees him, knew who he was. I didn't know who Ted Turner was, didn't care who Ted Turner was. But he was just a, a middle-aged guy with white hair. And my dad is afraid of nobody. My dad's too confident. He'll go talk to anybody. And so he's, come on, son. And so we go. And I'm holding a picture of David Thompson. I'm excited about that. Dad takes me down to meet Ted Turner. And so they talk a little bit. I'm totally not interested. And then I don't know what happened. I wasn't engaged in the conversation much. But Ted Turner takes the picture of David Thompson and writes his name underneath the picture, Ted Turner. Dad's excited about it. We go back and sit in our seats. And I remember doing this. I licked my thumb and I wiped it right off the picture. I didn't know who that man was. Didn't care. I don't think I regret it. I still was more excited about David Thompson. Had no idea. Listen, Pilate, Pilate had one of those moments. King of the world is right in front of him. And he thinks he's the judge. He thinks he gets to pronounce judgment on Jesus. He had it completely wrong. Maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe your whole life. Jesus, I don't know about him. I kind of, I get to pick and choose who I follow, and it's not him. I got other things I'm going to do. Listen, don't do that. It's Jesus. And here's another opportunity. You're hearing of Jesus, how awesome he is. We even sang about, it. there's nobody like him. He's the great treasure. It's not by accident that you're here hearing this good news. Today's the day. Would you bow the knee to Jesus today? Would you embrace him with your heart? Would you give him your mind? Would you say, I'm going to follow him? Listen, understand this. To judge Jesus wrongly that's going to be the basis of your judgment at the end of your life. I mean, that's ultimately it. Have you trusted in Jesus or have you denied Jesus? That, that's going to be the basis of your judgment at the end of your life. So we've been contrasting Peter with Jesus. And isn't Jesus, Jesus awesome? He alone worthy to be praised. We've just spent some time contrasting Pilate 
and Jesus. And isn't Jesus wonderful? He's worthy to trust and to follow. Now, real quickly, let's contrast the Pharisees with Jesus. Verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do to me, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So contrast the honesty and the authority and the holiness of Jesus with the hypocrisy and the scheming of these religious leaders. Luke tells us that these people were lying about Jesus and their accusations. This is Luke 23, 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. But that was not true. Jesus had never told them not to pay taxes to Caesar. It was Jesus who famously said, render the things to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were lying about him. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that the motive of these religious leaders for betraying Jesus and giving him over to the authorities was because of envy. So let me ask the question as we just think about this and apply it. Are you a religious person rejecting Jesus? Are you a religious person rejecting Jesus? It's common for us to hear in these days the statement, I'm spiritual but not religious. Now, many of us would resonate with part of that because I don't think most of us as believers in Christ, we don't really think of this much like a religion. Sometimes we hear religion, it sounds like a list of rules and your heart may or may not be a part of that. So most of us recoil from the word religious. It is much more, as we often say, it's a relationship with Jesus, a life-changing relationship. But sometimes the statement is used, I'm spiritual but not religious, and it's spoken to you as a Christian, they're saying, and I don't want your, I don't want your Jesus. I'm going to be spiritual. It's going to be more nebulous than, than that. I'm not going to be following one Savior, one Lord. It's possible to be religious and reject Jesus. In fact, look at these men, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these other religious leaders. They were blinded by their religion. And one of the incidents here, not only they're lying, they're comfortable with lying about Jesus to get him killed. All that's blind in the midst of their religion. But this is also striking. Here's the time of the Passover. They wouldn't go into Pilate's house because Pilate's a Gentile. They didn't want to become ceremonially unclean and not be able to participate in the Passover feast. So they're all concerned about their rituals while they're rejecting Christ and wanting him condemned. Their blindness, they fail to see that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus is fulfilling all that, but they don't see that. They said, we just got to keep ourselves away from the Gentiles so we can eat our feast and keep up our traditions. Are you religious like that? Pharisees, quite religious, meticulous with their religion but hated and rejected Jesus. In fact, notice what they did. With a choice between Jesus and a robber, they chose the robber. They chose the man by the name of Barabbas. He was an insurrectionist. And here we're told he was a robber. Let me ask you, are you making any similar choice like that in your life? Not Jesus. He's not the one I'm taking. I'm taking somebody else other than Jesus. Maybe it's yourself. I'm going to put myself in the spot. I, I will reject Jesus and insert your own name there. So what do we do with Jesus? You'd say along with the crowd, well, just crucify him because he's not going to lead my life. I'm following my own life. So compare Jesus to Peter and Jesus worthy to be praised. Compare Jesus to Pilate, only Jesus worthy to be praised. Compare him to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, his other leaders, and only Jesus worthy to be praised. Do you see Jesus today? Is that showing up in your life? 
You know, as a pastor, I have some interesting conversations out in the community. And through the years, I'll have this, this thing happen to me on some occasion. I'll meet people. They don't know I'm a pastor. And I don't go around flaunting I'm a pastor. I'm just Jim. And I just love Jesus. going to follow him wherever I go. So sometimes you meet a person. They don't know my background, what I do. And so they'll just start talking. And man, sometimes the vocabulary, they'll just talk, using all kinds of bad words, dropping them in there. Some people, it's like, man, this, those are adjectives and nouns. They're just throwing profanity in like everything. And I don't say anything because, you know, I'm, that's, not the, that's a symptom. That's not the thing. So I'm not correcting people's profanity when they're talking to me. But then it leads to this awkward moment because sometimes after all that profanity dump coming inbound toward me, they'll say, well, what do you do? And so then I have that moment. I say, well, I'm a pastor at Staples Mill Road Baptist Church. It's been funny on some occasions how quickly the vocabulary changes. <laughs> Sometimes they get very pious very quickly. And they'll say things like, well, praise the Lord. That is wonderful. And, um, and then they'll tell me where they go to church. I go to church over at such and such a place. And I go, oh, okay. And I always feel a little sorry for that pastor. But I'm humbled by that because I think I bet we have some staple mill folks talking to other people's pastor like that as well. But listen, it's not about the pastor we're just human beings. We, we fail ourselves, and we're just trusting in Jesus. As we often say, Jesus is the only hero of this story. It's about him. Do you love him? Are you following after Jesus? Do you see clearly today that Jesus is the best, that he's awesome, he's the perfect one? Do you see today that he's worthy of all of your trust? Do you see today that he is the truth, and you want to give yourself to him? In fact, this would be a great day to say, I'm trusting in Jesus. Again, why Jesus? Let's close with this. John 3, 36, listen how clear it is that you must have Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. No longer sit in judgment of Jesus. Would you embrace Jesus as your Savior? That's why he came. He loved you so much. He left his perfect heaven. He came to this earth, a sin-cursed earth. He lived perfectly because he loved you offered his sinless blood to make atonement for your sins and was raised from the dead. And the promise of scripture is true. If you believe in him, you'll not perish, but you'll have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for showing us again in the scriptures your beauty in contrast to all the ugliness of this life. Lord, even in contrast of all of our own personal ugliness, you stand alone as worthy of worship. And we're stunned that someone so wonderful and glorious as you would even come to the earth to help us, to rescue us. Lord, that you would be willing to forgive all of our sin. There's nobody like you. We've been singing it. We've seen it now in the word. And we want to respond to that. I pray for these precious ones, Lord, that you've brought today to hear this message. Those watching the live stream. God, that we would all make our move from trusting in ourselves or trusting in any other to trust only in you. God, we forsake the Barabbases that we've chosen before. Oh, Jesus, we have to have you, nobody like you. So Holy Spirit, do your work, be glorified in how you lead people to respond. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.